Hello, everyone. My name is Justin. I'm a philosopher at UMass. And uh, you should open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Uh, I'm going to be reading verses 18 through 39. And you will want to follow along because this is one of the best passages in Scripture. Ready for this? I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought. But that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died. Yes, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us, who will separate us from the love of Christ. Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, are more, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Oh God, it has been so evident this past year or so that creation groans and that we groan with it. But God, we thank you that this condition is temporary. And I pray that through Robert's preaching this morning, you will give us a glimpse of the glory that lies in the future when suffering will be no more. Amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. Thank you, Justin. I think he believes it. Well, good morning. My name's Robert. I'm the lead pastor here. I want to welcome you all. And this is the last uh, of the sermon series, uh, The Power of God. And uh, we've been going through Romans. 
uh, for quite some time, and we got the name for the series in the very first chapter where it says, Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And it is the power of God to save us from sin. It is the power of God to transform our lives in the here and now. And of recent, we've, we've been looking at the, the, the chapters in Romans that, that really give us the basics of the life change and how that comes about in the here and now. And that's in Romans 6 and 7 and 8. And I've been saying that Romans 6 was sort of like the pump-up speech that the coach gives you in the air-conditioned locker room. That you're a wildcat, and wildcats hit hard, and wildcats run hard, and wildcats never give up. And you're told who you are in the safety of the air-conditioned locker room. But then you walk out on the field, which is sort of like Romans 7, and the sun's in your eyes, it's 100 degrees, and there's an opponent staring you down, wanting to kill you. And this is the context in which we have to live out this identity that we've been given as Christians who are dead to sin and alive to God. There's an opponent, and the opponent mentioned in Romans 7 is that of sin, indwelling sin, that we are having to get up every morning and fight against. Paul even likens it to a war. Romans 8, the first part, it was what you heard last week, an excellent sermon from Patrick Grafton Cardwell, And I would encourage you to go back and listen to it if you haven't heard the first part of of the chapter, because it's going to help you even understand this next part that we're about to preach on. And in that part, you you find out some some of the practical ways in which you actually live out your identity in the context of the war zone. The big idea from that passage is that you are setting your mind on the things of the Spirit, and those things are the gospel. And so you're having to intentionally set your mind on your identity, and you're being assisted by the Holy Spirit who's helping you to set your mind on your identity. Now, at this point, you might feel a bit exasperated. All this talk of war and the difficulty of living out the Christian life in the here and now. In fact, Paul even describes the living out of the Christian life, the context as the sufferings of the present time in Romans 8, 18. So, talking of war, of setting our minds, of putting to death the misdeeds of the body even in the earlier part of Romans 8, uh, lets us know this is not a stroll through the park. This is uh, a stroll through a war zone. And any difficult war or race or fight has an end to the struggle. I mean, would we enter into a war or a race or a fight if there wasn't an end? (laughs) Well, of course not. And so in this war, this struggle, this, this fight, this race that is the Christian life in the here and now, there is an end. And that these present sufferings, which are a reality, an everyday reality, will give forth a glorious end. And that motivates us to persevere in the fight. So it's summed up in this Romans 8.18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
And so Paul assumes that every faithful Christian is going to go through suffering. Everyone. Most of us read this 8.18 and we assume he's not talking about us. I mean, surely he's, he's talking about the first century Christian. I mean, of course, they suffered. Or, or maybe he's talking about Palestinian Christians who are suffering right now, but not us. Not Christians living in America with a lot of economic wealth and protection and we have religious freedom. Certainly, he's not talking about us. But in Paul's mind, there is no faithful Christian who is not suffering. To live in step with the Spirit is to be out of step with sin. The sin living within and the sin of the system, of the world that we live in. And so anyone living according to the Spirit and out of step with sin is going to suffer. It doesn't matter where you live, whether it's Palestine or it's in the United States of America. Perhaps a more spiritually dangerous combat zone is a place of comfort. It is oftentimes in the place of great suffering where we're praying more. We're reading our Bible more. We're valuing fellowship in the Christian church more. It is when we are comfortable that we're often most vulnerable to attack. Partly because sin is deceptive. Uh, we heard this in Romans 7 where Paul is describing and personifying sin, saying sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. And so Paul lets us know that sin often doesn't use a frontal attack. It's, it's, a, it's a deceptive way of attacking. And this is true, I think, in many in the American church and some in Mercy House. We're all at risk of being deceived by sin. So as I said a couple of weeks ago, get back in the battle. If, if you haven't been experiencing the battle against sin and you're a Christian... <laughs> It's because you've walked away from the battle that needs to be engaged with. And so partly how we engage in the battle and stay in the battle is that we look to the end. We look to the end. And this is what the Apostle Paul is doing here in Romans 8. He's looking to the end. But not only looking to the end, he's longing for the end. Not only is he longing for the end, but he's linking the end to the beginning. And then he's living in light. Of the end. So there's your four points. If you're taking notes, we're looking at the end, we're longing for the end, we're linking up the end with the beginning, and we're living in light of the end. So the first part, uh, looking at the end here, verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. He's describing this, looking to the end. He describes creation like a mother in labor who's looking forward to the baby being born. It's pain, but it's good pain. It's not the pain of a chronic autoimmune disease or the pain of terminal cancer. It's the pain of childbirth. And make no mistake, 
it's painful. I don't know that, you know, personally, but I've seen it up close and personal. It's painful. But there's an end to it that is absolutely glorious. Melanie was in labor for 24 hours with our, our firstborn, uh, Corey, and it was a long and painful labor. But we got Corey! <laughs> Corey's amazing! <laughs> We're so glad that we got Corey and that the other two were C-sections. So, anyway... Um, we're glad we got those two. But it is a picture of pain, but a picture of waiting for something glorious, something that is worth the painful waiting. And so we are waiting for this birth of the new creation, which is the whole universe being made new by Jesus, through the grace of the gospel. And we're part of that new creation. We are going to be made new. We are going to be glorified. And so we're waiting like a mother who's laboring, waiting for that baby to be born. Now, sometimes this is hard to believe. Sometimes it feels like it's the first contraction and we got a whole 24 hours ahead. Or it's the first mile of a 26-mile marathon. And it feels like it's, just, it's so long. And we, can heart, we just can't see. We're looking. We just can't see the end. It could be you've started a parenting journey. You've got a terrible two. And it seems like this child's never going to grow out of all of the struggle. Maybe you're in a marriage journey where the sin that lives within has finally reared its ugly head. And it seems like you just fight and fight and fight and fight. You may be starting a new life of sobriety, and you've made it a few weeks, substance-free, but it feels like you can't make another step. Or it could be living out yet another year of chronic illness or nagging depression, and you feel like it's never going to end. And Romans 8 says, it is going to end. It is going to end. And it may end in the here And now, it's possible that that terrible two, by God's grace, will grow up and be a wonderful, fruitful human being, right? It is very possible that that marriage could grow in grace and be filled with intimacy and be a God-glorifying relationship. It's very possible that that sobriety will continue and you will continue to learn how to rely on gospel grace in order to remain sober. And it can be very possible that that chronic illness could be healed in the here and now by God's grace, and you could be released from that. But even if these particulars don't end up that way, or if other painful situations crop up, there is an end. There is an end, and it is a glorious end. And so whatever pain you may be experiencing today, look to the end. It is glorious. Not only look to the end, long for the end. Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for for it with patience. 
Notice that there's a lot of groaning in this passage. Now, there was groaning mentioned earlier in verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. There's this groaning that happens when a woman is having a baby. If you've ever been around labor, you know what I'm talking about. This became very apparent to my children one day when a, a woman that was in our church was, was, went into labor. Her husband happened to be out of town on that day. And so she called me, and she's like, I'm all alone. I'm in labor. And I'm like, I don't think this is a job for me. I think this may be a job for my wife. And so I, 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 called, I, I, I called my wife. She happened to be at a doctor's appointment across the street from the hospital, and she was with the kids. And so she ran across the street with the kids and went to take care of this woman who was in labor with this baby. And my kids were standing in the hall waiting for dad to come and pick them up. And Wumi, who was in the hospital room, was groaning. <laughs> and it was loud. <laughs> and she was like, Jesus, help me! <laughs> and it, it, it was just over and over and over. And I walk in the hall, and there's my little kids standing there, and their eyes are about this big. <laughs> it, it, was, it was no small, like, oh, it hurts a little bit. It was groaning. And this is what the Apostle Paul is describing. The groaning that a, a mother in labor is experiencing as she painfully births the baby. And you groan because it hurts. Sometimes Christians can dismiss pain. Like, oh, no, it doesn't hurt. Oh, the Lord's good. Oh, I, 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 don't, I don't feel any pain. I, I'm full of hope and peace. But life does hurt. It does hurt. And so, so Christians, we're, we're, we're not Buddhists who are saying, oh, pain is an illusion. No, we say, no, pain is real. And we, we grieve it. We lament it. We groan like a woman in childbirth. Now, we don't groan in despair. We don't just groan, oh, life's horrible and painful and I hate this world. That's not, that's not Christian groaning either. But it's like a woman in labor. We groan, re re revealing that it does hurt, but also revealing there is much hope at the end. And we long for the end when that groaning will stop. And this end is, is our glorification. This is when we will be made new, along with the rest of creation, we'll be made completely New. There will be no more tears. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more need to groan because there will be no more pain. And it, the way it's described, he talks about adoption and waiting for the adoption of the, the sons, the daughters of God. So I think of it this way, is, is that the adoption papers have been signed. Okay, if you're justified, if you put your faith in Christ... By grace through faith, you are now a son. You are a daughter of God. That has been signed. You're adopted by God. But you're still waiting for God to take you home. Papers are signed, but you're waiting. And you're waiting in a pain-filled or orphanage. <laughs> and you're being asked to live out your adoptive identity now in the orphanage. Waiting for your father to bring you home. You have 100% certainty that you are a child of God, even though you're in the orphanage. You're also not alone in the orphanage. And we'll talk about that here in a minute, because we do have 
assistance. This is in the next verse. Verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now we've got the Holy Spirit groaning. We had the creation groaning, we were groaning, and now the Holy Spirit is groaning. Notice he's called the, the first fruits. The first fruits is the first harvest that a farmer would get, and it would be offered up to God as, a, as an offering in the Old Testament. And so you can think about it this way. You're not left in the orphanage alone. You actually have the indwelling Holy Spirit of God living in you to assist you as you wait for your Father to fully bring you home. This idea of adoption was talked about earlier in the chapter. If you remember Romans 8, 14 and following, for all who are led by the Spirit of God, there's the Spirit idea again, and are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And you see that same kind of idea that the Holy Spirit is there living in the Christian, assisting the Christian, reminding the Christian of their identity. They are adopted even though they have not yet been taken home. Now, without the Spirit's help, we don't really groan like Christians. We just groan. We just groan. This world, my life, I don't like it. And we groan. But with the Spirit's assistance, we can groan like Christians. We can groan in acknowledging the pain of this world, but we can also groan in hope that the end is coming and that we have a 100% guaranteed identity that's been given to us through the cross of Christ. And what are we, what are we groaning for? We're, we're, I think when Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, I think that's a, a way to groan rightly. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Now, what is that talking about? Is that talking about we want you to come at the end of all days and make things new? I think it means that. But does it also mean, God, I want you to intervene in this moment, in this time, in this situation? Yeah, I think it means that too. I think this is partly how you groan as a Christian. You're groaning, Jesus, come back and finish this thing up. But you're also groaning, Jesus, would you work in this situation right now? That's a hope-filled kind of groaning. That, that is a mother and labor kind of, of groaning. And so you groan that God would work in the terrible two and would get a hold of the heart of that terrible two and transform that little boy, that little girl into a Christ follower. You groan that God would work in your sin-soaked marriage, transforming both you as individuals and you as a couple that you would become a glorious testimony to God's work in your lives. You, you groan that God would free you from a life-sucking addiction. And you get up every day, God, keep me sober. God, help me. And you, and you ask for him to work in the here and the now. And you groan that God would come and bring healing 
to a chronic illness or nagging depression. You're groaning along with creation. You're groaning along with the Holy Spirit. You're groaning that God would work in the now, and you're groaning that He would work in the not yet. At the end of all days, you long for the end. Now, all this looking to the end and longing for the end needs to be connected to the present, and I'm already kind of doing that in what I just described. But this is how Paul does it in verses 28 through 30. He links the end with the beginning. He says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. You see, Paul taking the end, which is glorification, and linking it with his beginning conversation of justification in Romans 1 through 5. Paul zooms out and looks at these links in the chain and describes God's salvation plan for humanity. He reminds us that God is good in Romans 8.28 and is working out good purposes for those that He loves. And we love us some Romans 28. I mean, come on. Christians, this is, this is our verse. We love this verse. That God is good and He works for good purposes in our lives. We take great comfort in this verse. And we should. But I think most of us probably take this verse out of its context. The good that we are usually thinking of that God's going to work out is pain-free living. It's suffering-free living. You can't understand Romans 8.28 if you don't understand Romans 8.18, that we live in present suffering. Paul's not saying in Romans 8.28 that God takes His magic wand and takes away all our suffering, and that's the good. And most of us, when we read this verse and quote this verse, we, that's what we're thinking, that good is the removal of all suffering, and that good will be given to us in the end. And we long for that. We look to that. But it is not something that is promised in the here and the now. So what is this good that's being talked about in Romans 8.28? The good is God's salvation plan for human beings. Again, it's like links in a chain. Those He foreknew, He predestined. Those He predestined, He called. Those He called, He justified. Those He justified, He glorified. These are links in a chain, and they're ways in which Paul describes God's overall salvation plan. Again, I'll read verses 29 and 30. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So let's look at some of these concepts here. Foreknew, what does that mean? It means God knew before, right? He knew what was going to happen. He knew that the good that he intended to be worked out, the purposes that he intended to work out, they were going to happen. It was going to be a 100% guaranteed objective. And when he created the world, he said it was very good. So that would make sense that God would have something very good in mind when he created the world. 
But here, Paul's letting us know, even though sin entered into the world, God's purposes will be guaranteed 100%. He is good, and he's working out good purposes, even in a sin-soaked planet like ours, where there is suffering. Nothing is going to thwart his plan. Now, how did he foreknow that this was going to happen? He foreknew this because he predestined the plan. That's the next word. What does it mean to predestine? It means to predetermine. So that which he foreknew, he foreordained. That's why he can foreknow stuff. It's because he foreordained the things that he foreknew. God doesn't just have a crystal ball that he looks into to see what's going to happen. God providentially works in the world in order to accomplish his, his, his purposes. And the, the, again, the objective is 100% guaranteed. Now, there's a lot of debate about how God accomplishes these purposes, especially how it relates to the human will, uh, whether you think God chooses who is saved beforehand or you think God uses some kind of middle knowledge in order to make sure that those who will respond to the gospel will get saved. I, I don't think that's necessarily important for the, the passage uh, but to know that whatever God has planned, the good plan, it's going to be carried out 100%. That's, what, that's the most important part of this passage. That he foreknows what's going to happen because he has predetermined it and how he's worked that out. You, you, know, you can talk to the philosophers in the room and they can help you to work that out. But his plan will be 100% guaranteed. And those he foreknew, predestined, he called. He called. Now, I, I think this is a very intimate kind of a call. I call you. I, I call you by your name. Right? Hey, I, you know, I, I'm saying Tommy or I'm saying Callie. Right? I'm calling you. I'm not just saying, hey, anybody interested? Right? It's, it's, an, it's an intimate kind of a, of a word. I'm calling you. Not a general call, but a, a very specific call. Now, practically speaking, there's an external call. right? We read verses like John 3.16, For God so loved the world. Right? That sounds pretty inclusive. That He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so there is a sense of an external call. Hey, anybody? You want Christ? You want to believe in Him? You want to follow Him? Come! All right? So that there is an external kind of a general call. But there's also an internal specific call. And a few chapters later in John, we read verses like this, John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So that's more of a specific call. No one can come to the Father. Well, I thought 3.16 said everyone could come to the Father. Which is it? Well, it's both. It's an external call. It's a general call, but there's also an internal call. And that internal call is a supernatural call to call people to faith in Christ. And so those he foreknew, he predestined, and he works that predestination out by calling people. Now, what happens to these people that he calls? Is he calling them, you know, to uh, have a, a party? Or like, what, what is he doing? What's he calling them to? He's calling them to the next link in the chain, justification justification. We've talked a lot about justification in this series, but uh, this, this giving them the legal standing in the courtroom of God apart from law-keeping. 
They're forgiven by grace that's been purchased for them at the cross. And they now, through faith, have access to perfect legal standing in the courtroom of God. That's justification. And so those He foreknew, He predestined, He called, and they have responded to that call, and they've experienced justification. This was most of Romans, right? This is Romans definitely 1 through 5, chapters 1 through 5, is, is Paul describing this idea of justification. But what's the last link in the chain? Glorification. And he uses past tense. He says those he justified, past tense, he's also glorified, past tense. He, he, he's trying to let you know the, the outcome is 100% guaranteed. If you've been foreknown, predestined, called, justified, you will be glorified. And so when you look to the end, you long for the end, you can know if you're a justified Christian, that that end is 100% guaranteed. You need that in order to keep persevering in the present sufferings of this life. And so Paul has linked everything that has been said about justification with the final outcome of the glorification of not just the justified person, but the whole universe. So we look at the end. We long for the end. We link the end with the rest of God's plan and we live in light of the end. So this last part that Justin had so much fun reading is really the way that we can live in light of this glorious end that is a 100% guaranteed end. And so this is the way Paul, he's like, this is how, if you're, if you're a justified Christian, you can, you can talk this way about the suffering of this world. And this is when he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And, and, it, and it's sort of like a, a stadium yell. So I don't know if you've ever been in some big football kind of stadiums, but at the University of Texas, they would do this stadium yell with one side would say something and the other side would respond. And so at the University of Texas, one side would say, Texas, of course. And then the other side would say, fight! And the other side would say, Texas! And the other side would say, fight! Right? I, I think about Romans 8 a little bit like this. Like, what then... Shall we say to these things, if God is for us, who can be against us? No one! Right? I mean, he doesn't answer it in the text, but we know the answer. Right? You're not, you guys aren't helping me out very much. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You're like, he's going to give us everything, right? If he gave us his son, he's going to graciously give us everything that we need. Well, who can bring any charge against God's elect? No one! Is it God who justifies? Who is, it that, who, who is to condemn? No one! Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of, the, of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one! Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No! Then he says this, and this is a little confusing. We'll talk about it in a minute. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. We'll come back to that in a minute. 
Then back to verse 37. No, in all things, things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so again, he's just like, is tribulation going to separate us? No! Are angels, are demons, are death? No! And so this is how the, the, the Christian can live in this present suffering and live with the hope of a groaning mother is because we know the end. It is guaranteed. And it is in that hope that we can continue to persevere in faith. Now, you do notice that sandwiched in the, between all that victory talk is, is that, as it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And you read that and you go, what, what, wait, what? Huh. That doesn't seem to be a, a great part of your victory speech. Are you saying that we're, we could get killed for our faith? Yes! Are, are, are you saying we're going to possibly be slaughtered like sheep? Yes! This world is sufferings. And it's not just sufferings for people who are not Christians. It's sufferings for people who are Christians. In fact, there's more suffering in many ways for those who are Christ followers. But know that even though Romans 8.18 is true, Romans 8.28 is also true simultaneously. God is working for good in the lives of those who are called according to His purpose. And that purpose is that golden chain <laughs> that those He foreknew, He predestined, and He called, and He justified, and He will glorify. That's His purpose. It's not the purpose that we all have suffering-free, pain-free living. Definitely sin-free living, but not suffering-free and pain-free living. And how can, how can I know this? How can I know this? How can I know that, that God is going to 100% fulfill His objectives that He has foreknown? And what Paul does is he, he points us back to the cross. Verse 32, did you catch that? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see what Paul's doing there? He's, he's standing in between the cross and the end. And he's been telling us about the end and how glorious the end's going to be. And then he swings back to the cross and he says, if God would do that, then I know 100% that he will do this. And so he, he goes back to the cross of Christ. That if he's willing to do that, to become a, a human being and to suffer and to die on a bloody Roman cross in order for us to be forgiven and be reconciled with him and fulfill this foreknown, predestined, called justification thing that he has set out to do, I mean, surely if he's going to do all that, he's going to do this glorification thing. He's going to finish the final link in the chain. And so this is how we live in light of the end. And part of living in light of the end is swinging back to the cross. <laughs> so you swing back to the cross, 
And then you think about the end, and then you draw that into the here and now. So let's talk about this. How, how, do, we, how do we apply this in our lives? So for not yet a Christian, you don't get this end unless you place faith in what God has done at the cross. And so understanding what, what Christ has done for you in, to die in your place so that you could be forgiven of your sins. And he may be calling you this morning. Anybody who's a Christian, they know that experience of God calling them, of, of experiencing that, 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 that drawing. You know, what we read in John 6, No one comes to the Father unless he draws them. And every Christian has this story of how God drew them. And it may have been last month, they thought Christians were crazy and the gospel was not true. And then the next month, they thought, no, the gospel is true. I want to become a Christian. How'd that happen? God drew them. He called them. And so it may be that God is calling you this morning. Answer his call. Answer his call. Place faith in Christ this morning for the forgiveness of your sins and be made new. Now, is that going to you know, take away all your suffering? No, it might increase it. It might increase it. In fact, it's probably going to increase it in some ways. As you fight sin within, as you have to get out of step with the sinful system of this world, it's going to be a war. But it is, you're being caught up in the most hope-filled groaning that you ever could. And God will bring us to this place of glorification in the new heavens and the new earth. Respond to that today. Put your faith and what Christ has done on the cross. Now, if you are a Christian, then be encouraged this morning by this reflection on the end. Nothing will separate you from the love of God. Nothing. No amount of suffering, no amount of difficulty, no amount of, of, of struggle with sin. Be encouraged by looking at the end. Also, bring your reflections of the end into your present. If you're having a, a difficult marriage, bring this Romans 8 description of the end and, and bring it into your current struggles in your marriage. And what that should do is help you stay married because no matter how hard it might be, how hard it might be for the next 10 years, 20 years, who knows what's going to happen. There's no, no guarantees in what he's going to do in the here and now. But you know what he's going to do at the end. And you know he will give you grace to bear up under whatever you have to bear up in that relationship. And you will stand before Jesus at the end and be able to say, I, I, I honored you best I knew how because I knew that this end was coming and that I would stand before you in glory. Right? Draw that back, that, that vision of the end, into the struggles of the here and now. It could be a challenging parenting situation. P pull that vision of the end into that challenging parent situation. You may be fighting an addiction and think, I don't know if I can make it another day. But pull that hope that's from the end and draw it into the current struggle that you're facing. It, it may be struggles within relationships in the church. It may be health struggles. It, it may be financial worry. Whatever is happening in the here and now that is part of your present sufferings, pull that hope from the end into the, the present sufferings that you're experiencing, there is going to be an end, and it's going to be glorious. Also pull that hope from the end into your aversion to legitimate suffering. 
as, as sinners, we, we, just don't, we don't want to suffer. Like, we, we just want to run away from suffering. And, and this glorious vision of the end, I think, can help us to embrace suffering that, we, that every faithful Christian ought to experience. Right? You, you are going to be getting up earlier to pray and read the Scripture in the morning. That's suffering. You, you, you are going to be uh, making financial sacrifices in order to be generous. That's, that's suffering. Right? You, you, you're going to be sacrificing your time and your energy to, to serve your neighbors or to serve those within the church. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be suffering. But when you look at it in light of the end, oh, it's, it's a glorious opportunity. P- pull that vision of, of the hope-filled end into these decisions that you're making in the here and now to be a faithful Christian. It may be that God's calling you to open up your home in hospitality. That's hard. It's expensive. It's suffering. Pull that hope from the end into that decision about being hospitable. So much of walking with Jesus is not comfortable. It is not convenient. But it is a hope-filled suffering that does yield itself to a glorious end. My son Corey, uh, he is part of a youth ministry at a church in Texas, and he's just, he's just been a faithful servant to, to serve in uh, this, this youth ministry and to walk with these young men. The way they do it is they start with the same group and they just keep going up as they go up in, in age. And so he's got to know these guys and love these guys and disciple these guys. And the other day he gets a call, and it's from uh, one of the pastors, and he says, this youth that Corey's been working with, the youth's father has committed suicide. And he said, Corey, I want you to come with me to pick up the youth from school. He doesn't know that this has happened to his father. And I want you to drive with me to his home so that we can tell him and his family the, the other kids, about the suicide. And so Corey's calling me, and he's saying, what do I do, Dad? What do I say? How do I handle this? Right? And on one hand, it's an excruciatingly painful situation. It is it's so much suffering to enter into a, a family situation like this, but it's also holy ground. And that's what I told him. I'm like, Corey, this is holy ground, man. And it's not so much what you say. You need to be present. You need to lean into this darkness. And you need to speak truth to them. And you need to pray for them. And you need to walk with them. No matter what. And so on one hand, it was some suffering that he was entering into. On another hand, it was glorious. Because God was able to use Corey to comfort this kid and comfort this family and bring the hope of the gospel in the here and now as they were groaning over the death of their father. And so, let's groan. Let's groan. Let's groan like Christians. Not like complainers. Like Christians who groan for God to intervene in the moment and to change our lives and to change the lives of others. And let's groan for the end when this world of present sufferings will be completely made new. Let's pray.
God, teach us to groan. There's so many different stories in the room of experiences of suffering for numbers of reasons. And I pray that this passage would be an encouragement to them as they're swept up into your glorious redemption story that you are going to carry out 100%. And that in the hope of that, they'd be able to groan, to groan in hope that you will work in the here and now, but also groan and long for the new heaven and the new earth. Thank you that you have done at the cross already what is required to make all things new, including us. And we give you thanks and praise for that this morning and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.